This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Good evening. I've been telling everybody good morning. Good evening to you. Uh, Thanks for coming out. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. If you're a regular church grower, 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 oh yeah, maybe you go and grow. Uh, Hopefully you're a regular church grower. Um, But if you've been going for a long time, how many of you felt a tad guilty this morning? It's like, oh man, I should be at church. And yeah, some of you did. Thank you for the honest confession of a ministry time for you. Then I was in a store um, this morning when I would be at church normally. And I just thought, oh man, I just want to tell people I'll be going tonight. So it's okay. I'm going tonight. I'm here this morning, but I'll be going tonight. Parade my righteousness. So, uh, yeah, it's a little different, uh, but I could fall in love with this because, uh, well, I, I could. I got extra time to prepare for Sunday night. I'm out preparing by the pool in our neighborhood pool. Uh, so this, I could get used to this real quickly. Um, and this will be our rhythm until uh, sometime in 2016, early part of 2016. So um, thanks, for, thanks for coming on a Sunday night. It's a little different, uh, but I trust the Lord's going to meet us. He has not changed uh, we're still meeting on Sundays, and it's just a different time. So uh, thanks, for, thanks for being here early. A number, number of you were here early, so uh, there's fewer excuses to be late for a 5 p.m. service than there might be a morning service. Uh, so thanks for, thanks for being here. Um, I'm going to go with our regular... Uh, I'm going to continue through with our regular teaching in Genesis 9, but I do want to let you know about our next series that we're going to do. We're doing Genesis 1 through 11, and I'm going to sneak into ver- uh, chapter 12 a little bit. Uh, but I want to tell you a little bit about our next series. Uh, obviously, a lot of questions have been raised. Um, there's emotions, thoughts, concerns, um, fears, uh, all, kinds of, all kinds of responses from the church in response to the uh, Supreme Court decision this week uh, regarding gay marriage. Um, and so I'm not going to talk about that at all tonight, uh, but I will talk about that subject in some detail because our next series uh, is going to be called Redeeming Sex. And I was cleaning out my office and moving, and I had written in my notes two years ago I wanted to do a series on biblical sexuality. And uh, so then I didn't. We did other things. We studied other parts of the Bible. And then in January, we were mapping out the year, and I told the guys, I want to do a series on sex. And uh, I think it's a super important topic that we haven't addressed and we should be addressing, uh, the uh, biblical sexuality. And uh, so we scheduled it for this summer uh, back in January. So um, it it certainly, the the theme will touch on themes that have been raised this week. It won't be about, it won't be a series about the decision rendered this week or anything of the sort. But it will be a series talking about uh, sexuality. A couple things on it just to prepare. This will be in July. It'll be a few weeks off. Uh, if your kids don't normally go to children's ministry and you keep them with you, you should send them to children's ministry. Uh, that would be one thing. And uh, your middle school and high school kids, it'll probably be a PG-13 uh, level of discussion. It'll all be Bible, uh, but the Bible is PG-13 and, and, uh, and more at points. Uh, So what I'm going to do is at our next equip meeting, which is for the parents of middle school and high schoolers, which will be on the 11th, I'm going to meet and just give you an overview of what I'm going to teach in the next seven weeks. It'll be around seven weeks. Sometimes we plan a series and it goes longer, uh, sometimes shorter, Uh, but it'll probably be around seven weeks is what I'm looking to talk about uh, starting the first message will be on what is the meaning of sex. So that would be the first thing I'm going to talk about. So what I'm going to do is, uh, with the parents, I'll have some resources for you. I'll give you an overview of what I'm going to talk about, probably tell you a little bit about what even kind of, what kind of language I plan on using um, and where I will be delicate and uh, where I will be clearer um, in the way I express something. So I'll probably talk a little bit about that. I'll give you all the topics so if you have a middle schooler, I don't think it would matter for a high schooler, but if you have a middle schooler, uh, you might want to have some detail on how I'm going to talk about this. So I'll talk about it at the parents' meeting and let you know, and then you can be armed with some resources uh, to talk about uh, sexuality. I'll talk about marriage and sex, I'll talk about singles and sex, I'm going to talk about pornography, I'm going to talk about homosexuality. So I'm going to cover a number of subjects that the Bible addresses that are relevant for each of us in our own lives. And it'll be a very positive series because it'll be about redemption. Uh, Jesus redeems all of our lives, 
And uh, we are all sinful. We are all broken people with regard to our sexuality since the fall. And God is about redeeming that in all of our lives. And uh, so that's a very good message because we all need redemption uh, in that area. So that's what I'm going to be talking about. Redeeming sex. That's the next series coming up. But right now we are still in Genesis uh, chapter 9. And uh, we're going to finish chapter 9 and then we're going to go to chapter 10. And we'll finish 10. I don't know if I'm going to say a lot about 10. It's a genealogy. Uh, I'll say something because next week we will be on the Tower of Babel, regardless of how much I cover in chapter 10. We will be there. So here we go, chapter 9. And as always in the Bible, the context is really important. The context is really key uh, to the passage that we are about to read. Uh, We've read about Noah's life. Doesn't Noah get more play than you might have thought he does for me, than I imagined? You know, Adam and Eve... They come and go, but we got multiple things. The story of Noah and his descendants just keeps going. It's a big chunk of the scripture. And uh, if you think about Noah, there is, there is really no other story uh, quite like Noah's. Consider what God did in Noah's life. Um, he, uh, the world had become a very evil place. And if we think the world today is evil, it wouldn't measure compared to the evil in Noah's day because God says... Every thought of every person was evil all the time. Uh, And there was no one walking with God, no one that knew God, no one that was honoring God except Noah alone. And uh, so he lived in this very wicked world. He found favor with God. God had favor on him. It said he was righteous. It said that he he walked with God in chapter 6 as well. And then God decides because the people of the world have all rejected him, And because they are harming one another, it said that the the culture had become completely corrupt and violent. So evidently there's a lot of harm. People are hurting each other, killing each other. Um, And so people are harming one another constantly. People have turned from God completely. And God decides to bring a just and a fair judgment and to destroy uh, really the lives of every living thing except Noah and his family. And he he tells Noah to build an ark, which is a boat. He gives him very specific instructions, tells him to build a boat, tells him to bring animals on it, a pair of every animal and seven of every clean animal. Uh, And then then the rain begins. And and throughout, we see Noah responding to God. In uh, chapter 6, verse 22, it says, Noah did all that God had commanded him. Now, who is like that? I mean, it's a story about God, but the glimpses we get about Noah are this guy's amazing uh, in terms of his response to the Lord. He did everything that God commanded him uh, regarding building this, uh, building this ark. So we see that Noah is following the Lord. It rains for 40 days. God blots out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, chapter 7, verse 23. I mean, it's a grievous section of Scripture. It's heavy. The, the judgment that came to people who rejected God, it, it is heavy. And then the waters prevailed for 150 days, and then they abated, went down for 150 days. So Noah was on the boat better than a year. Once you add up everything that went on, he and his family were on the boat more than a year. At one point, Noah looks out and sees the ground is dry, but he doesn't even exit the boat. Now, after a year with animals, and uh, I, I don't think it's fragrant uh, or pleasantly fragrant on the boat, and you've been cooped up, and man, I want to get out. It's dry. Let's get out. He does not get off the boat until God tells him. Just another emphasis that he is someone who obeyed the Lord in all that he did. He was a faithful, faithful man. And as you think about him, you think if anybody gets salvation, it's Noah. If anybody gets God rescues, it's Noah. Noah saw what none of us have seen. He saw every person he knows die for their sin. He saw every animal wiped out, save those brought on the boat and his family. So Noah knew what it was like to say he knew the father's love. He knew the father's protection. He knew preservation. He knew being rescued and being saved by God. And God gives him a fresh start. He comes out of the boat, and it's like Genesis 1 and 2 all over again. He says, be fruitful and multiply. He gets the same, um, he gets the same commandment 
that Adam got to be fruitful, the, the creation, the, the mandate given by God. And so he gets a fresh start. He also gets this wonderful promise from God. As soon as he gets off the boat, the first thing we read is that he worships God. He offers a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. And God says, I will never destroy people, all of the people like this again. God makes this promise. And then God gives him a sign to uh, secure the promise, a symbol to show him the promise that he will never destroy the world again. And he gives him the rainbow as a sign. It's a sign of the covenant, the promise God has made that I will never destroy all living people and animals, all living beings uh, by water again. As long as the earth is the earth, uh, you'll have seed time and harvest. You'll have the seasons. God will provide food. And so what this rainbow represents, what the sign of the rainbow represents is the covenant of God. It means that God forbears with people that deserve judgment. It means that God is merciful to people who deserve wrath. And that's all of us. That's everyone. So when we see the rainbow, that's what we should be thinking, is that it's God's covenant sign that he will not destroy the world. So he gives him a new start. He, he's been obedient. He's worshipped. He gives him a sign. And then the next thing we read about Noah is perhaps not exactly what we are anticipating or expecting. And that, this is from uh, chapter 9, verses 18 through 28. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Let me pray. I intended to pray at the very beginning, and I it just I forgot. So let's let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for your scripture, for your word, which always speaks to us. And we ask you for, Lord, even in this rather curious passage today, that you would speak to us and that you would open our eyes and that you would give us uh, a, a glimpse into your character. I pray that you would uh, appropriately give us warnings where we need warnings, corrections where we need correction encouragement where we need encouragement, strength and comfort where we need strength and comfort. And we pray that you would bring that all to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ this evening. So, Spirit of God, come and speak to us and, uh, and tell us your word for us individually and as a church tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I want to talk about really three things. I want to talk about Noah's fall, and I want to talk about Ham's fall, and then I want to talk about how God's grace advances, and that's looking briefly at chapter 9. If, chapter, uh, if the previous chapter, chapter uh, 8 uh, and, and part of 9, looks like Genesis 2, the creation mandate, go and multiply, this chapter looks like the fall. So this really mirrors the beginning of the book of Genesis, and this looks like the fall. For after all God has done, there is this story about Noah. Uh, verses 18 through 19 tell us, here's what's going to happen until chapter 12. The sons of Noah, they went forth from the ark. Their names are Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And these three were the sons of Noah. And from these people, the whole earth were dispersed. So what he's saying is, uh, these are the people who are going to populate the planet. It's, this is all it is, is this one family group, and they're going to populate the planet. And so now we're going to get uh, two chapters on how they dispersed and populated the planet. 
And then it's going to lead us to a guy named Abram. I'll probably refer to him as Abraham because that's his name later. Uh, initially, he's named Abram. But it's going to lead us to that place. So that, that's what's happening here. Noah and his sons and what happens after them. So after pleasing the Lord by offering a sacrifice, the next thing we learn about Noah is that he planted a vineyard. Verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Now, likely this is quite a bit later. It probably didn't happen. uh, Well, we know it didn't happen. This event didn't happen immediately after, because by the time this event happened, uh, Noah's uh, son, uh, Noah's son Ham, already had four sons because he brings up the youngest son whose name is Canaan. So, so it didn't happen immediately after. They had to have landed. They had to start having children. Uh, Ham had four sons, and it's this last son he talks about, Canaan, here. So it's sometime later. We don't know exactly how much, but it is sometime later. And Noah begins by planting a vineyard. And the indication is that he is, he's the kind of the originator of this in some ways. In the ancient Near East... Um, the idea was that the gods created wine, and uh, here in the Bible, uh, it appears that, that Noah, at least textually, this reads this way, that he, he began, he, he planted a vineyard, he, he began this. Uh, Waltke, the commentator, says that the text implies that Noah develops viticulture, which is the science of growing grapes, and viniculture, which is the science of making wine. So it seems like he... He, uh, he begins this, at least in the Scripture. Uh, and then he, what does he do? Well, he drinks from the produce, uh, the grapes he grew. He makes wine. He drinks of the wine. He becomes drunk. He drinks too much, and he becomes drunk because of it. So in the Bible, I'm going to talk. This is not the purpose of this event, but I'm going to talk a little bit about alcohol because this is the first introduction of alcohol, uh, maybe anywhere, but certainly in the Bible. Uh, And it's clear throughout Scripture, God does not forbid alcohol, but God does forbid drunkenness. And that's exactly what happens with Noah. He drinks too much, and he becomes uh, inebriated. And often in the Bible, this is why what happens here is kind of a, a, there's a trajectory in the Bible of what we read here, and that's this, that one of the reasons God forbids drunkenness, um, obviously we lose our ability to make sober decisions, Um, And so there's reasons like that. But it's often what happens afterward that is the problem in the Bible. The person who loses the ability to think clearly often then does something uh, that's more sinful, or in this case, has something done to them. It's interesting. The next mention of alcohol in the Bible is a good one. It's Melchizedek, the high priest. He brings bread and wine out to Abram. Uh, and uh, so it, it, to celebrate the victory of God in Abram's life. So wine is good there. It's celebratory. The next time it's mentioned after that, it is terrible. It's in, I believe, chapter 19, where Lot and his daughters live up in a cave in the hills, and the daughters, there's no men except dad, and the daughters want to have children, so the daughters do something like here. They say, let's get dad drunk, and then they sleep with Lot, their dad, while he is drunk so that they can get pregnant and have children. So their drunkenness leads to sexual immorality, incestuous immorality even. And so there we see, as we walk through Genesis, there's good uses and there are bad uses. So it's, it's not a passage primarily about alcohol, but, it's, but wine does contribute to what happens here. Um, wine in the scripture is described as a gift, A gift from God. So Psalm 104 says, God gives wine to gladden the heart of man. So it's given by God as a gift. There's no no statement here that is bad that Noah planted a vineyard or anything like that. Um, Yet, wherever we see alcohol in the Bible, there is always, uh, in this text, an implicit warning of the danger. So a gift from God, but a warning of the danger as well. Um, and because we see it used positively and negatively in the Scripture, we see people abstain from alcohol for positive reasons in the Scripture as well. So it's kind of a, there's a mixed response. It's a gift from God. Uh, he is not opposed uh, to wine, but it is always to be received with great, uh, great warning. And so that's a good balance for all of us. Some of us in the room grew up fundamentalist. Uh, you got older, you couldn't drink, became reformed, you could drink, 
And so if that's you, well, you know, good that you found some Bible verses you didn't know about when you grew up. That's good. Uh, but you know what? You need to have the warning of the Bible that, it, it, that Christian liberty is to be used in love towards other, and there's always a, a concern for the danger attached to it. So it's not just, wow, I'm not fundamentalist anymore. I can drink. Uh, no, it's, it's, uh, if I'm going to choose to drink, I need to do so with discretion and wisdom and moderation because there's dangers attached to it. And then there's other people on the other side of the road that thinks everybody should just be forbidden from drinking wine, uh, you know, completely. And for those in that camp, then I think the other side is true, that we need to look at the Scripture and, and say, hey, the, the Scripture's broader than that when it addresses this topic. So, for instance, in the, in the Bible... A Nazarite vow, they were highly committed people. They were committed not to drink. A Nazarite would not take, well, actually, they wouldn't even drink grape, uh, unfermented grapes, but they didn't have anything to do with the vine. So they, this was a sign of great commitment. And yet, on the other hand, you'll find in the Bible that, uh, that uh, there were annual festivals where wine was consumed as a great blessing from the Lord. God even blessed people with fruitful vineyards. Wine was a sign of celebration and the blessing of God. I didn't write down the reference, but you can find it after church. It's easy to find. Uh, one of the most surprising instances in all the Bible is, uh, is in the Old Testament that uh, one of the tithes, there was multiple tithes in the Old Testament, and one of the tithes was used for a celebration meal, and the scripture actually says that someone could cash in whatever they were tithing, the animals or whatever it was, they could cash it in and they were to buy strong drink and then celebrate in a religious service. So that's going to blow some circuits. That's like, okay, ushers, if they're going to go out after the service, literally in the worship service, they will have, you know, there'll be strong drink, whiskey, tequila, rum. This is what, the, you know, this is in the Bible. So at one level, there was celebration with, uh, used with alcohol, but there was also abstaining for the Nazarite, for the person, and all the priests who were serving in the temple did not drink. So there is that side as well. John the Baptist did not drink. That's why Baptists don't drink, just joking. So uh, <laughs> it was after their father, John the Baptist. John the Baptist did not drink. Jesus drank. Okay, John the Baptist did not drink. Jesus drank. So I think the summary of it all, because you're going, hey, what's Noah doing? He's drinking. Does this mean all, all drinking is? No, it means drunkenness is wrong. Generally speaking, God is not opposed to alcohol, and he actually associates it with blessing and religious celebration in some points, but it must be consumed with great care because of the dangers associated with it. And for very good reasons, some people will choose to abstain. So that's, that's the picture, I think. It's, it's something God provides. It's to be used with moderation and clarity and care because there are dangers associated with it throughout people drink, and this kind of thing happens that we're reading right now. Drunkenness is always sinful. Some will choose to moderately drink, and some will choose to not drink at all. And in the church, both of those have to be accepted and respected, and we have to learn to love one another in our practices. Um, in this area and prefer the other person. That's a whole different topic. So anyway, I, I wanted to say a little bit about that because here's the first, every time w once we first met marriage, I said something about it. When we first met work, I said something about it. So when we first meet the use of alcohol, I thought, okay, I'll give you a little biblical theology of alcohol there, or at least wine. So Noah doesn't stay within his borders. One person said, the vine which Noah planted eventually takes control of him, and that's the risk. The vine which he planted takes control of him. He abuses it, he gets drunk, he passes out or falls asleep, whatever it is. I don't know if he blacked out or if he just was, got sleepy, it was in the evening, I don't know. But he, he falls asleep, and, uh, and then here's what we see happens. It says that he lay, verse 21, he lay uncovered in his tent. Lay uncovered is reflexive. It's something you do to yourself. Like if I say, I brush my teeth, that's reflexive. That's a reflexive uh, use of a verb. So it, it literally means he uncovered himself. He exposed himself. So he, he gets drunk and he exposes himself and he loses consciousness through sleeping or passing out. Oh, we don't know. Why is this story in the Bible? I mean, we have just had chapters of Noah as role model, Noah as righteous, Noah as the only guy on the planet that gets saved. So why in the world are we now reading about Noah drunk, 
passed out and exposing himself in his tent. It is, it's a very unusual story. As a matter of fact, it's so unusual and troubling to some people that the early church, some of the early church fathers allegorized it. They were not even comfortable interpreting it for what really happened, so they allegorized it. And some said an allegory is you know, everything represented something. So Noah uh, represented uh, Jesus in planting a vineyard, and the wine was represent, represented the Holy Spirit, and his, him is exposing itself. That, rec- that represented his nakedness on the cross where he died for our sins. Just crazy interpretations. Why did they come up with that? Because they were uncomfortable that the man of God, the righteous man of God, the one man who was saved, that there would be a biblical description of such uh, inappropriate kind of behavior. It seems unexpected as we're reading through the text. Everything's going great, and then this. It seems unexpected, and it's supposed to be unexpected. That's the whole point of why it is included, because God has made a covenant with sinners. That's what we need to read in a story like this. We need to say, God has made a covenant with sinners. And when we see an heroic kind of a guy In a condition like this, it is to cause us to look to God and realize that God is faithful, just as we sang, even when there is human unfaithfulness. There is sin in the new world. There was a flood, but there is sin in the new world. And Noah is one of the sinners. He's one of the sinners. God made a covenant promise, but the covenant promise is not based upon ultimately Noah's performance but it's based on God's performance. It's not excused in any sense. The the ramifications of his actions are devastating when we look at Ham and his descendants. It's devastating. There are consequences to his actions. But the point is that he is a flawed individual, and he needs the promises of God. He needs the grace and the mercy of God and not just his behavior and his actions to rest upon God's covenant, we get the rainbow of God's faithful covenant. It's unilateral. He's not going to destroy the world again. So we see that, and then we see the primary guy we've read about falling. And this is throughout the Bible. The first two big guys we hit, we hit Adam, he falls. We hit Noah, he falls. The next guy we're going to get is Abraham, next major guy. And he is going to go and on more than one occasion lie and say that his wife is not his wife and put her at tremendous risk of being sexually violated, of being harmed. He's going to say she's not his wife. Other guys take her. And he's going to lie cowardly and put his wife at risk. That's the next hero we encounter. And just go down the line. Moses, who leads the people out of Egypt, leads the people in the desert, at a point gets angry, self-righteously takes, uh, judges the people, takes God's place, puts himself in God's place, judges the people, angrily strikes the rock, and God says, because of your actions, you're not going to go into the promised land. David, the great king that points to Jesus, we all know his story. He does many wonderful things, and yet he is going to commit adultery and, and, and even worse, murder. He's going to commit murder. So when we read these kinds of stories, we're supposed to come away with the idea that there is only one hero in the Bible. And it's not Noah, as great of a man as he was, all that God did in his life. And it's not Abraham. And it's not the great King David or the great deliverer Moses. God does wonderful things, and they serve as an example in many ways to us that are good. But there is only one hero in the Bible, and it is Jesus. Everyone else is flawed. Everyone else is flawed. God, in his grace, is pleased to work through flawed people. And that should give us a lot of hope, because that's you and that's me. And God's covenant is not based on what we do. It's based on his faithfulness in terms of his saving, his choosing us, his work of Jesus through us. God is faithful to his word. So when we read something like this, we should marvel at the grace of God. Marvel at the grace of God. Noah, God still works. God still brings salvation. Salvation is going to press on just because this happened. Salvation is going to press on. So we should, we should marvel at the grace of God. And secondly, we should receive a warning. It's both. We marvel at the grace of God, 
But it's never to cause us to say, hey, it doesn't matter. Noah did it. I can get drunk too. Drunkenness is forbidden throughout Scripture. It's never endorsed in any way. So it's not, I can get drunk too. It's not a big deal. Noah, everything seemed to work out okay for him. God still loved him. We don't look at someone's fall and say, that gives me license to do the same. We see the mercy of God, and that causes us to run to him and trust him and fear him and act for his glory. His mercy, his, his kindness leads us to repentance. It should not lead us to presumption, lead us to sin. I can do whatever I want. God's gracious. No, then we haven't understood grace. His kindness and his grace leads us to come back to him and say, what a father that loves the unfaithful. What a savior who is faithful even when we are not. It should lead us to him. And secondly, it provides a warning. 1 Corinthians 10.6 says, it's speaking of uh, like the book of Numbers, the, the, the uh, generation that was in the wilderness, the generation this book is written to, Genesis. It says, these things took place as, as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. The Old Testament saints who sin, they serve as an example that we may not desire, that we might not desire evil as they did. So when we read the story of Noah, we should be thankful for God's covenant with his people, but we should also see our own vulnerability. That's true, humanly speaking, too, when, when, when not, not Noah, but a leader falls or sins in some way. That should provoke the fear of the Lord in us. Just like this story does, that, that, that we are all vulnerable. We're vulnerable. He was a godly man and he fell into sin that in turn provided temptation to others. Ham's responsible for his sin. But if Noah is never drunk, he's never passed out naked in the tent. And uh, so he provides a measure of temptation, which we'll talk about in just a second. Kent Hughes says, Noah's failure stands as a witness to the dangers that await the faithful with the passing of years. I'm going to say something about that a little bit. That there is a warning here. I don't think it's the primary point of the text, but there is a warning here from his actions that Noah had a great track record. Noah had done really well, but Noah has come to the end of his years. We know that, that the, the flood, when the flood came, Noah was at two-thirds of his life. Okay, so he was entering the last third of his life when the flood came. This is even later. We don't know how much later, but they've landed, and he's had four grandsons, and presumably Canaan is an adult. So his youngest grandson's probably, uh, uh, probably an adult by this point. So he's way up there probably when this happens in life. And so even though he started great and he did well and he battled with the Lord, Noah's life prior to the flood, he did great. But the last third, at least this event, this is the last thing we read about him. It's tragic. It's the last thing we read about him. The only thing he says in the whole Bible is to curse his son or his grandson, Canaan. So here we go. As he ages, there is this temptation that just because we have pursued the Lord when we are young, as we are older, there can be a loss of diligence. Perhaps that's what happens with him. We don't know. We just know that he was a righteous man who walked with God, who was obedient, and then had a what appears to be a crash later in his life. And as we age, that is a temptation. Sometimes I say, when I preach, sometimes I say, I want to say something to the young people because I'm concerned for you. Not that you're all bad or something, but I'm concerned for the temptations that surround you and your response to them. When I read the story of Noah, I say, I'm concerned for the older ones of us. I'm concerned for us that when, when, when Noah is fighting against um, when he is the only one standing for God, and we don't know what his interaction with other people was, but we know that he was the only guy standing for God. When he was the only guy standing for God, he was obedient, and he listened, and he responded to God. But the reality is that sometimes we can do that at one stage in our lives, and as we age, we just take our foot off the gas a little bit, and we just start coasting. When we see an example like this, we need to say, Where, what is the warning to me? in terms of my own vulnerability. We get older. I'm talking about people like me. You're in your, you're in your 40s or 50s, particularly your 50s or 60s or 70s or 80s. We'll say that. You're in that area of, of life. And what can happen is in our younger years, maybe we were radical. There was an edge to our faith, our trust, our, our commitment to the Lord. 
we raised our children and we were careful with the kind of things that we're going to read about in the text. We were careful with their influences, which meant we were careful with our influences. There was a fear of the Lord in our lives. Maybe when we were younger, we made some hard choices as disciples. We made some hard choices to stand righteously that cost us some relationships, so cost us reputation, maybe even cost us a job or a friendship. So there was a, there was a standing for the Lord as disciples. And then later in life, the temptation can just be to kind of disengage, to soften. So that's my concern for us that are older, to soften, to grow lax. I know in my own life, I was, I was asking myself this weekend, am I... The the Christian life is described as a battle. Now, he's ultimately won the battle. Jesus has won the battle. But we apply his victory in our lives. And so we're still in a battle until we see him face to face. And I was asking myself this this question. Am I in the battle as fiercely battling as I was back, say, when I was in college or first married? When when there was just a season in my life that was I just was wanting to go full out for the Lord. And I was stupid and made some mistakes for sure. I wouldn't want to be that same guy today. But the heart was a desire to please the Lord at any cost. And the trajectory I see among Christians, and I see this among some of us, I see this in me, is that we, we get a little older and we just start cruising, we just start disengaging. Just the wisdom of life's taught us how to just not be, you know, just kind of take it, be, be a little bit more status quo, a little bit moderate in our conviction towards the Lord and not fight like we used to. There there are plenty of Christians who in our younger years have an edge, a sharp, a good edge, not an obnoxious edge, uh, but but have a good edge for the Lord, a a, a sensitive conscience. And as we we grow older, we, 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 we... soften that in some ways. Now, if we're self-righteous, it's good to soften that, become a person of grace. Amen. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something else. You know, I don't want to over-apply this passage, but this is true as well, that people get older and sometimes they seek to medicate their hearts. There are a lot of people that when they were younger did not abuse alcohol, Christians, and when they hit 50, 60, 70, you talk to a counselor and they will tell you people in that stage of life uh, there, there's alcohol abuse that wasn't before. Why? Because life didn't turn out the way we thought. We get a little jaded. We get a little bitter. We get a little disappointed. We didn't reach where we thought in our career. Our marriage didn't really pan out the way we hoped it would. Something about our kids isn't what we dreamed that they would be. Our health didn't, didn't pan out the way we thought. The church didn't turn out to be what it was. Our work wasn't the same. And then we get a little older and then we, 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 there, is a, there is a bitterness, there is a depression, sometimes there's a cynicism, and, and we medicate that. We medicate that in some way. We medicate that with alcohol or, we, um, or, or some other, or we take solace in our bitterness and our judgment towards other people. And, and it's a warning that even after faithful, radical, costly service to Jesus we can fall. And that's not to put some kind of fear everybody's to be panicking about. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying we need a sober, that's probably a good pun, we need a sober assessment of ourselves and our vulnerabilities as we age. And we need to re- there are some of us that need to re-engage. We're moving into a season in the life of our church where I think the ministry opportunities are going to be more than we're going to be able to handle. And we don't, at that point, the Lord has not called the 50-year-olds, the 60-year-olds, the 70-year-olds to sort of disengage and lay back and be less radical and more moderate in our faith towards the Lord and, you know, a little bit, uh, just a little bit cynical and just a little bit sort of judgmental and, and certainly not just ingrown in our own lives and our own hopes and our own dreams and how they didn't turn out and then just grow sour and become that crotchety old person just yelling at kids to get off their lawn. That is not what the Lord's calling us to. I think he's calling the 50-year-olds, the 60-year-olds, and the 70-year-olds to lead the way in this church in radical devotion to Jesus Christ in a gospel-centered life full of faith, full of prayer, full of passion, reaching the lost, growing as disciples in the Lord, marriages that are growing now more than they did at first, devotional lives that are deeper now than they were years ago. 
because we all could just turn it in and crash as Noah does here. Or Usually it's not a crash. Usually it's a fade. It's usually a fade. And you just sort of fade off where you're not drunk and naked, but you're about that useful in the kingdom because you're just detached. You're just detached from what the Lord has. I don't think the Lord wants that from us. As I was studying this passage, I mean, I'm not even going to get into chapter 10. I, I just felt so strongly about this that I felt like I just needed to talk about this with us as a church tonight. Um, you know, Paul tells Timothy, flee youthful lusts. And I'll say something like, young people, listen to me. Okay, I, I do that all the time. But there's another word for us, to, and if I can, you know, without being disrespectful to the Scripture, uh, re, re-say that a little bit. We need to flee aging lusts as well. Lust for comfort, lust for leave me alone, lust for isolation, lust for everybody catering to me, lust for everything's supposed to turn out the way I want it to, or I'll take my toys and go home, God, you didn't do what I want. All of that, getting rid of all of that stuff. God is gracious, so let's turn to him. Let's make room for others in our lives. Let's, let's, let's go back. Some of us need revival. We need to go back to where we were when we were first saved by the Lord. I think the Lord does not want us to fade out. I think he wants us to go out in a flame, so to speak. I think the Lord wants... The, old, the people who know Jesus the longest period of time should be the most passionate for him because we know him more. I should be way more passionate about Jesus now than I was when I was 20, when I had more of the young or 16, 17, 18, when I had the brand new kind of eyes for the Lord. Now I've seen him work for years. I've read, I know way more about the Bible. I should have excessively more passion for the Lord, love for him, intimacy with him, desire for him, humility before him, conscience awake to him, desire to spread his gospel. It should be way more now than it was. Noah should be passing on the faith to the next generation, celebrating the faith. We should be having more sacrifices and reading that God is well-pleased. That's what we should be reading right now. Not that Noah crashed and his son sinned and now there's a cursed generation. But let that be a warning to each of us in the room. And let, let us see that the Lord is faithful in it all. We turn to him and he is merciful He is faithful. So God works through sinners. He works through flawed people. If we crash and burn like him, there's mercy to get back up. The Lord lifts us up. The Lord gives us a fresh shot. If you're 70 years old tonight, you get new mercy in the morning as a believer. Brand new mercy. 80 years old, tomorrow. His mercies are new every morning. If you crashed in the last month, if something happened terrible, you broke a relationship, you stole something, you got... Uh, you, you've got a, a substance abuse problem, you're older and you're addicted to pornography and you thought, wow, I thought that was for teenagers and here I am at this goal, I'm on the, the you know, the, towards the end of my life and I'm still, this is going, listen, there is redemption no matter what your sins are. Anger, bitter, there is redemption, his mercy is new every morning because his covenant is everlasting and he is faithful to us in Jesus Christ. So, I talked a lot about warning. We should, we should, we should, because the Bible says, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Okay, so we read it. Let's get the example. Let's don't go out and desire what Noah's got going on here. Let's desire Christ, and only he gives us that, that heart, and we can receive that by turning to him. The next thing is that, and this will have to be brief, but Ham, uh, Ham fails. So Noah fails, and then Ham fails. What, we, what do we learn about Ham? Uh, well, uh, Ham uh, is the father of Canaan. Verse 18, Ham was the father of Canaan. Verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan. What does God want us to know about Ham? We don't really need to know a ton about Ham except his son is Canaan. And the reason that's really important is because the first people that are reading this are in the desert, and they're led by Moses. Moses wrote it. So they're in the desert, and they're about to go into the land of Canaan and take the land of Canaan. So God is revealing, here's where the land of Canaan began. It began with Ham. What did Ham do? Well, Ham goes in, and Ham looks on. What does it say? It says that he saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. What is happening here? Well, Noah is in his tent. Remember, he exposed himself, but he didn't do it publicly. He did it privately. He's in his tent. So Ham invades his privacy. Ham sees into the tent, goes into the tent, and looks on his father's nakedness. Now, there are some people that interpret this. There's a lot of interpretations about it. Uh, The father's nakedness, that biblically sometimes refers to the wife. 
So sometimes people think that he looked in and committed an incestuous act with his mother. Some people think he committed an incestuous act with his father, and this is kind of a euphemism to make it sound uh, perhaps a little bit more palatable than what he did. I don't think there's any reason for to interpret this uh, sexually, that something happened sexually. I suppose it's possible, but that's not what the text says. We're going to have to speculate. So the text says, and the reason I even bring that up is because you may have heard that. People teach that, that he did something um, sexual with his father. It just says that he saw the nakedness of his father. And then I think we know what he did because if we see his brother's response, we see the difference. So he looks at his father. He, he, is, uh, he sees his father in a shameful condition. And what would have been the appropriate, respectful thing to do? He should have covered his father. But he doesn't cover his father. He looks, he's, he's taken, you know, taken uh, up with this for some reason. Uh, and he goes out and he tells his brothers. And so what does he do? He exposes his father further. His father exposes himself. And then Ham further exposes his father and dishonors him by telling someone else about it. Telling him what he did. He's drunk. Uh, I saw him naked. And so what happens? Well, his brothers go in, and they do the right thing. They take a garment. They don't even look. Dad's back here. They take a garment. They put them on there. They step backwards. They lay it on their dad without even looking so that his shame, his shameful act, his shameful drunken stupor, his shameful self-exposure is covered. That's what they do. They honor their father. They respect their father. New Testament says that love covers a multitude of sins, First Peter 4, 8. They lovingly cover their father's sin. Ham celebrates it, is allured by it, is talking about it, whatever. We don't know exactly. But Ham goes out and does just the opposite. And when Noah awakes, he says to him in uh, verse 25, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Canaan is the son of Ham. And the reason the tie is here is because they're going into the land of the Canaanites. The land of the Canaanites is perverse. The land of the Canaanites, there are all kinds of religious and sexual practices. They're killing their children. Uh, They're doing all kinds of just uh, reprehensible things. And so the theme as they prepare to go into the land is don't be like the Canaanites. Their practices are evil. We get that in Leviticus 18, for instance. It says, you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan. And then it lists a number of different behaviors. And so if they're reading this at first, they're going, okay, the Canaanites are opposed to the Lord. And this is where it all began. It all began with Ham, who didn't do the honorable thing, but did the wrong thing. And the Canaanites just sort of, it circles, I mean, it uh, cycles into worse and worse and worse and worse behavior, starting here. Shem and Japheth, on the other hand, will be blessed. Uh, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may God enlarge Japheth. Lastly, Noah dies, and that's the last thing we read about him. Let me say one thing about chapter 10. It's a lot of names, uh, but let me say one thing. In chapter 10, we see that God's grace advances. We see that God is Lord over all the nations, so we see something about his sovereignty. We see that all the nations have a... I wanted to talk about this. Uh, All the nations have a common ancestry. So chapter 10 alone, if we had nothing else in the Bible, chapter 10 alone would tell us that racism and nationalism is reprehensible before God because all races, all ethnicities, and all nationalities came from the same... uh, from the same... descended from the same people, from the three sons of Noah. And so we all have, we're all made in God's image, and we all, beyond that, share a common uh, lineage as humans. And so when he walks through chapter 10, it is the dispersing of all the people. And it says God is Lord over all those people is the point. And by implication, racism and nationalism are, uh, are to be uh, totally, uh, God's totally opposed to that. But ultimately, we see that salvation moves forward. Here's an interesting thing I didn't realize until this week. When you see genealogies in the Bible, often you get a genealogy right before salvation. So Genesis 5, we get a genealogy. Genesis 6, we get God saving Noah. In the Gospels, in Matthew and Luke, we get genealogies. Then we get Jesus, the Savior. Genealogies are often before. So here we're getting a genealogy. We'll get the Tower of Babel. Then we'll get the genealogy again. And then we get Abraham, the chosen one who will bring uh, through him will be salvation. And it will all come through Shem. 
So Shem uh, is, the, is, uh, is Noah's son. Blessed be the God of Shem, verse 26. The way chapter 10 works is you get verse 2, the sons of Japheth. Not going to talk about it. Number 6, chapter verse 6, the sons of Ham. Unfortunately, can't talk about it. Uh, but through Ham, oh man, we get Babylon, you get Assyria, you get Egypt, you get Canaanite, you get Canaan, you get all of Israel's enemies come through Ham. And then you get Shem. Verse 21, to Shem also the father of all the children of Eber. I guess it is Eber. Eber is the word we get Hebrews from. So all of the Hebrews, all of the Israelites come from Eber who comes from Shem. So we find this is the pathway that God will bring salvation. It's through Shem, through, the, through Eber, a few generations down, we'll get to Abram, and salvation will come. Bruce Walke says, God's victory through Shem, he'll come through Shem, over degraded moral practices is ultimately spiritual and fulfilled in the Messianic, Messianic age, which is inaugurated by the greatest of the Shemites, Jesus Christ. I mean, I never heard that. All the names of Jesus, <laughs> the greatest of the Shemites, where we get the word Semitic. The greatest of the Shemites is Jesus Christ. He will bring salvation. So we end there. We end with Shem, and then we go Tower of Babel. Then we go back to Shem, and we get to Abram. We get the line of salvation. What's the point? That Noah falls uh, through his sons. It's a mixed bag of what happens in all the nations. But God chooses a particular nation out of that through which he will bring blessing to all the nations. And through that through that comes Jesus Christ. Through Shem will ultimately come Jesus Christ, and his grace is advancing. God's grace advances. It, gra- it advances through failed people. It advances through people who blow him off and rebel against him. There's a guy in here named Nimrod in chapter 10. He's a ruler. He, his name means we will rebel. I would not suggest that for your child's name. We will rebel. So that's what, he's, that's what his name is. So whether people rebel, the grace of God is moving forward. The mission of God goes forward. Whether people are hot one day and cold, the mission of God was moving forward. Whether sincere believers fall and are restored and get backed up, the mission of God is moving forward. God's mission will move to Jesus, who will save us, and it will move from him. He is merciful through him. He is merciful, and he brings salvation to all who will believe. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.